Assurance of Pardon is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, the most advanced Bible study tool for both ministers and laypeople. Available on iOS and Android for phones and tablets, as well as on your Windows or Mac computer or laptop. Get the most of your time in the scriptures with Logos Bible Software. For more information and 15% off your next Logos package plus five free ebooks, visit assuranceofpardon.com slash logos. Now on with the show. Welcome to Assurance of Pardon, a podcast about the gospel, the Bible, the church, what it all means, and why it all matters. I'm Scott Davis, pastor of Hope Presbyterian Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I'm Gage Jordan, assistant pastor of Youth and Families at First Presbyterian Dyersburg in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Well, Gage, uh, we are here in Season 3, our series on hermeneutics, the uh, what you might call the art and science of how to interpret the Bible. Such an important thing for Christians to know. There is so much, uh, you might say, urban legends, uh, uh, disinformation circulating on Facebook, just out of context, terribly handled Bible verses. It's is in an, in a day and age when Christians have so much access through the internet to so many good resources. I mean, anything a person wants to learn how to do as it relates to interpreting the scriptures, there's a there's a way they can find that. Whether they if they want to learn to read Greek and Hebrew, there are resources for that. So, in a day and age with so many tools at our disposal, so many resources, yet the truth is there is more error circulating around through social media and and Bible verses that have been ripped from their context and turned into uh, memes with a little bit of a, of a commentary there in the picture description. So this this series could not be more timely, and we've been receiving really good feedback from our listeners as we've been going through this, where we will, uh, by the time this podcast posts, we will be hitting 10,000 downloads, which is super encouraging to know that there are folks all over the world who've been listening to this and benefiting from it. And uh, every week we get some feedback from somebody who uh, who gives us some encouragement. So keep those, as they say, keep those cards and letters coming. Uh, Gage, I think we, uh, as we are uh, a, a little ways into this, and we've been in this hermeneutic series for a while, uh, we wanted to, to spend a little bit of time recapping what we've talked about so far. So what are some of the things that folks hopefully have learned so far? So the biggest thing I think is trying to give um, our listeners steps to, to practice uh, proper hermeneutics. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say there's a bunch of different hermeneutical tools out there, but really you could boil down um, for the, the everyday listener, the, the non seminary trained person in the congregation that just wants to understand their Bible. Um, there's four things that I would focus on and I would start with. And that's uh, when you're reading the Bible, understand what the author means, right? Authorial intent. Uh, what, what's the author meaning? What, what is he trying to convey? Who is he talking to? Um, when when uh, is he writing? Things like that. Uh, the next I would say is understand the genre uh, of what you're reading. Are you reading history? Are you reading poetry? Are you reading apocalyptic literature? Are you reading an epistle? Uh, understanding the genre uh, will help you understand, is this literal? Is this figurative? What what language are we dealing with? What type of language are we dealing with in the Bible? Because it, it, it's important to understand the Bible is 66 books, two testaments, 
one story. So there are, are various genres and types and different um, areas of literature in the Bible, and it's important for you to understand genre. The next, I would say, is context, right? Um, just like, Scott, you gave this analogy, just like uh, in real estate, the most important thing is location, location, location. The most important thing is context, context, context. Look, look in the verse, read the verses before it, read the verses after it, understand where it is in the narrative of the story. Um, and that will help you to apply the verse in its proper context. And I think the last thing and the most important thing is to understand that this entire Bible, all 66 books, while dealing in, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and their original languages, it's all one story. There are 40 different authors, various language types, hundreds of years, one story. And that story leads us to Jesus. So every time you're reading the passage, you're, you need to ask yourself, how do I get to Jesus here? What is this telling me about Jesus? What is this? What information is this giving me in the story of Jesus? How does Jesus help fulfill what's happening here? Uh, and, and if we do that, I think um, following those four easy steps, um, that will give you so much uh, help in understanding what you're reading. And, and really every episode that we've done, even in dealing with the, the specific passages we have in Second Chronicles and in uh, Philippians 4.13, and all the other passages that we've looked at, um, really practicing those four steps is what we want to do e- each and every time. Um, and that's hopefully giving the listeners uh, tools where they feel like, when I open my Bible, I can understand this. Because that was that's the hope of, uh, of every pastor, is that um, you don't feel like the pastor has it all figured out, and you're just hoping to to glean a little bit from what he has. And that was the hope of the Reformation, right? That's the reason the Reformers gave their lives for translating the Bible into the language of the people and getting the Bible in the hands of the people so that they could read it for themselves. Yeah, amen. A couple of other couple of other uh, questions we ask of the text as you were moving through genre and context and authorial intent and original audience. Um, one of those is, is this passage narrative or is it didactic? Uh, said another way, is this text prescriptive or descriptive? Uh, there are verses that are prescriptive that are speaking to me, the Christian. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you're... If, if you're uh, um, when you read that, you don't have to go, who's that talking to? That's talking to me. I'm a husband. I'm a member of the church. I'm a, I'm a Christian. And so I am to consider how has Christ loved the church, and I'm to do that. But there are other verses. By the way, we, we, that we, we would call that didactic, right? It's a, it's, it's a verse that is teaching me something. It's talking to me. Uh, however, there are uh, other types of Scripture that are sheerly narrative. They're not telling me to do anything. They're not telling me to apply anything. I am to read them. I am to uh, maybe meditate on what's going on there, what has happened. And um, maybe I'm just to enjoy what happens there. So, uh, And then the Israelites went and slew the Philistines. There's nothing for me to do there. There's nothing for me to do there. There's and how often have we have have we been led into error and confusion because we read passages that are describing something that God told a particular prophet or a particular person to do. You think about the book of Hosea, where Hosea the prophet is made a living object lesson for God's people. Hosea the prophet is told to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. 
women did not have fetching names back then. Uh, he's told to go marry Gomer, it, uh, who, who is a prostitute. Is there anywhere where we can make the case that that is a, uh, a telling me I also should marry a woman of loose morals? Of course not. So just basic yeah. questions. And another one uh, before we get into the bulk of what we're going to talk about today. Um, if I find myself with an understanding or an interpretation of what's going on in this text, I need to ask myself, is this consistent with what theologians have taught in the past? R.C. Sproul makes the point is if you – if you read a passage and you come away with an interpretation that has escaped the notice of 2,000 years of Bible readers, you mm-hmm. probably need to abandon that because you have likely moved into some sort of error or heresy. We are not the first people to read the Bible. Men and yeah, women smarter amen. than us have, have read these passages and have dealt with these. And so, goodness gracious, use a commentary. Yeah, amen. One more thing I would add to that, just real quickly, and we've talked about this in several different episodes, so I won't spend um, a lot of time on this, but this, it's the concept of the indicative and the imperative. Uh, Michael Horton and Whitehorse Inn has been talking about this for 30 years, the indicative, the imperative. In, in other words, the indicative is telling you something about who God is, right? Uh, think in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters or so are giving you indicatives, truth about what God has done. Yeah, truth uh, about not only truth about who God is, but truth about who we are. Correct. Because of Christ. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So like uh, chapter one talks about the work of the Trinity uh, in, in eternity past for redemption. Chapter two tells you about who you are, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, but God. And then um, the imperative then tells you, answers the, the famous Francis Schaeffer question, how, how then should we live in light of what we were just told about who God is and who we are and what Jesus has done um, for our salvation? How do we live in light of that, right? So think, again, going back to Ephesians, chapter 4 starts this through, through chapter 6. This is how you live. These are, these are how the gifts are given. This is how you live now. Let the thief no longer steal. Like, go get a job. Like, you you are a brother and sister. Uh, build one another up in love. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Like, all those things are uh, imperatives. They're, they're giving you an imperative. They're giving you a command. They're giving you instruction on how to live in light of what you have just been told about who God is and who you are and, and that reality. And I think that is also huge when you're reading. Uh, you don't want to confuse the, you don't want to just teach the imperatives and just give people a bunch of to-do list. And you, you don't want to just read the indicatives and fill people with a bunch of knowledge and never give them actually anything for, for applying for their life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that, that brings us to our, our topic we're going to spend a little bit uh, on today and uh, we we enter into this topic with with great fear and trembling because we have uh, thus far in our in all of what we've done we've tried to be very accessible we've tried to have sort of lower shelf things we're not talking we we want to avoid inside baseball and so everything that we've done we've done out of a desire to introduce these theological topics to people who are completely new to these things right and so we're going to give, as we talk about what we're going to talk about today, we're going to give a a very broad overview and introduce these these topics, and then we're going to point you to some resources. So what do we got today, Gage? So when we think about, 
you know, hermeneutics being the the art and science of interpreting the Bible for Presbyterians or for those in the broader Reformed side of Christianity, we would hold to uh, what's called covenant theology. Um, and that that theology, that covenant theology, that kind of filter, if you will, shapes how we read the Bible and how we see the Bible as a whole in its entirety. Um, and so we hold to covenant theology. Um, uh, the, the counter to that would be, you may have heard the phrase dispensationalism. We'll, we'll talk about that briefly in the episode today. But essentially, the, the idea behind covenant theology is this. We believe the Bible is one story. We believe that there are Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, that there isn't a hard line between Israel and the church, that uh, there's always been those that are looking either forward to the Messiah and putting their hope in him or looking back to what the Messiah, Jesus, has done. Um, And in that theology, that filter, that streamline, if you will, uh, that thread that we read the the scriptures by, um, you'll see that... Um, God has always interacted with his people in covenants. A a simple definition for a covenant is just an agreement between two parties. That God um, consistently throughout the history of redemption makes agreements with his people um, and those agreements all kind of go together. As you start to look through the, the storyline of the Bible, you'll see like puzzle pieces. They start to connect to one another, um, telling this this broad story that uh, finds its its climax, its purpose, its goal in Jesus. Uh, and so as we think through covenant theology, we, we start to kind of look. We see that these agreements, these covenants, Um, are in six different areas that we focus on. And those six covenants actually um, connect us to a beautiful story in the history of redemption. The first is in Genesis 2 with Adam. God makes an agreement with Adam when he creates him. He he puts him over uh, the garden and over everything that's in the garden uh, and tells him to be be a, a steward of it, to be fruitful, to b- multiply. And then he tells to him about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he, and he gives him a condition. Don't eat. You can eat anything else in the garden. You can have anything else in the garden. Don't eat from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you do that, you'll surely die. Theologians, you may have heard this phrase or read this phrase in any of the resources we've given you. Theologians call this the covenant of works, or he calls it the Adamic covenant, right? Because yeah. it's, it's the covenant with Adam. And, yeah, there are sometimes it's called the covenant of life. Yeah. Right. And, and in the covenant of life, God promises, God promises to bless Adam if he obeys it perfectly. And obeying it perfectly requires one you know, one rule, um, and and to punish him with death if he disobeys. All right. So the here's the agreement. Mm-hmm. You do this, you live. You do this, you die. And the 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 condition of the covenant is is perfect obedience, right? And what we know, and what we know as we continue to read the scripture is that Adam did not act for himself alone, but he acted for the entire human race. He is what theologians would call our federal head, meaning his his actions, uh, uh, his his guilt is passed down to us. So yeah, I, 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 
I inherited my eye color from my mother and my left-handedness from my mom, and I walk like my dad, and I look like my dad, and I inherited my love and propensity of sinning from my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. Another good way to think about this, uh, the the uh, Christian rapper and poet Shylin uh, says it's it's Adam wore the jersey, right? So just like when one guy on the team makes a foul and it affects the whole team, Adam was wearing the humanity jersey. And so when he made the decision, it affected the whole team humanity, right? That's another easy sports analogy for you. And, and sometimes people say that does not sound fair. But if you're if you're uncomfortable with one man's work being imputed to you, then you're really not going to like Jesus because in right. Jesus you have one man's perfect obedience being credited to me. Right. So even that is is setting me up and preparing me for a better Adam who's going to come along. The right. uh, in, in, when we say the federal head, one of the helpful ways to think about that is is in the federal government if the president commits the nation to war with Russia, then uh, it's not the president that's at war with Russia. It's the people whom he represents are now at war. The, mm-hmm. the president, as the commander-in-chief, has the ability to take a nation to war, and now we're at war. And, and, and Adam Adam uh, entered us into this in through one man's disobedience we all fell. Absolutely. So Romans 5 is a great place uh, to to dig into this and understand the contrast between um, Adam and the new new and better Adam, Jesus. Um, so then we, we move on in the, the history of redemption, and we see uh, next in Genesis 9, God's covenant with Noah, right? The Noah being one of the patriarchs, that God is is making an agreement with Noah. And Scott, do you want to kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, let me do this because we we failed to say this in uh, a covenant is is in a sense like a contract and that it's an agreement between two parties. But biblical covenants are unlike that in that uh, they don't involve God saying, "Hey, here's what I think it ought to be. What do you think it ought to be?" Gage, you you and you and your wife Katie just bought a house, and and when you're buying a house, you 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 know you end up emailing back and forth these real estate contracts where you say, "Well, I promise to pay this if you promise to fix the windows," and they say, "Well, I tell you what, we won't fix the windows, but we'll lower the price," and we we go back and forth with this these covenants until we land on one that both parties find agreeable. Right. And you, right. You, that's not the way biblical covenants work. Not God does not say, God does not say, here's my covenant that I make with you. Look it over, uh, take a red pen, make any changes you want, fax it back to me, and we'll just go back and forth until we come to an agreed upon agreement. No, in a biblical covenant, God is the author of the covenant. And he says, I'm the covenant maker. I'm making the promises. Here's the terms of it. You're now mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. So it is a it is so we need to make that very clear because yes, in that absolutely. sense it's not like another covenant in the way that we would we would enter into a, a, a covenant or a contract for buying real estate or taking a job somewhere. No, I think that's a that's a helpful distinction. So Scott, understanding those terms, how would you define the Noahic covenant? 
So in, in Genesis chapter 9, this is after the flood, uh, Genesis chapter 9, uh, God says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God says, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, and then, in case we not understand, for all future generations. So this is a covenant, again, where Noah's going, hey, here's there's a new covenant, making it with you and with all of creation for all time. Right. That I will, never, I will never again destroy the earth uh, uh, by a flood. And I'm going to give you a sign of that every time there's a, every time there is a, uh, 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 every time you look, not every time there rains, but every time you look in the sky and you see this bow in the clouds, know that that is my, um, my promise that I will never again flood the earth. And then you see throughout the history of redemption that God often, um, gives his his covenant and then accompanies that covenant with signs right that we we see signs um often go with covenants we see the the rainbow here with the noahic covenant uh the next covenant that we're we're going to look at is the abrahamic covenant uh we see that in genesis 15 where where god makes his agreement and he actually this is again where context comes into, into play you talked about how Oftentimes with God's covenant, he, he's the dictator, right? He gets to determine the terms and, and he uh, uses that. But there's also this idea, even in the context of uh, the Old Testament, of lesser and greater authority, right? Uh, suzerain and vassal are the, are the terms there. And here in the Abrahamic covenant, you see God kind of speak to Abraham in the language he could understand. And he enacts this covenant that would have been common. But the thing that we see here in Genesis 15 is Abraham's asleep. Abraham's asleep when God walks through the pieces and basically enacts his covenant and says, if this covenant breaks may what's happening to these pieces happen to me and we see that that's what happens to jesus right this yeah, is again where we go how does this fulfilled uh be fulfilled in christ here's a good foreshadowing of what's happening there um, so he makes this agreement with abraham and he says that i will be your god that you will be my people there's an agreement of land and there's agreement of descendants and from your descendants from your offspring, the nations will be blessed. And so he, he promises that his, his descendants will be as much as the sand of the, the sea and the stars of the sky. And we see ultimately in, in passages like Galatians 3, that that offspring that he's promising will bless the nations again is Jesus. What happens there when God tells Abraham to, Abram at the time, to, to cut animals in half, lay the pieces on either side, and normally in an, in an, in an early uh, uh, Middle Eastern uh, covenant, um, what would happen is that the the greater king would make the the lesser king who he had just conquered walk through these pieces, as you said, as a way of saying, if you don't keep the terms of the covenant, this is what happens to you. Um, and and 
what we see at the Last Supper as Jesus takes bread, and you just imagine Jesus taking bread and breaking it in half and holding it in either hand with his arms outstretched. And what does he say? This is my body, which is broken for you. I'm about to go to the cross, and I'm about to pass through the pieces. I'm about to experience the destruction that that covenant that that covenant with Abraham pointed to. It's all coming full circle right here. Absolutely. So then we, then we continue in the storyline. And the next covenant that we see is God's covenant with his people in Exodus 20 and the giving of the law. And again, this, this is going to seem real similar to the covenant of works that um, it's an agreement of here's my law. Do this and live. Don't do this and the, and and die. And the the whole point here in the giving of the law is it should feel as you read the law, you should read it every time and think there's no way in the world I can do this. I continuously fail at this. It was never given to um, think, oh, I can accomplish all this, and if I accomplish all this, I'll be righteous. It was always meant to point to a need for a savior. And so in the the Mosaic covenant, as it's given in this, in this sign that's given um, to the people through, through the giving of the tablets, uh, we, we see the, the Mosaic covenant enacted. And it, it's important here, um, as God is building for himself a, a people for his own possession, um, what, one thing we forgot to mention, the Abrahamic covenant, is the sign that's given to Abraham that these promises will come true is the sign of circumcision. And, it, and, it, and again, now you have a people uh, that is growing, a nation, if you will, um, in Israel that is being given law, that, it, that is uh, being rescued from uh, slavery. And these are circumcised, sign-giving covenant people. And, and God gives them the Mosaic law for them to abide by, for them to follow, for them to, to obey. Uh, we then through the rest of the Old Testament, see how they fail at that miserably. Because guess what? We fail at that miserably. We're given the law and we can't keep it. Uh, all, all we can do is be like our father Adam and and fail at the law. And, and so as, as that that's given, you see how the story is starting to unfold. In uh, Exodus chapter 24, uh, this is the confirming of the covenant. Um Moses says, says then, he, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, right? The, the, um, we, we're going to keep the covenant. We're going to keep the covenant. And Moses says, okay, we're going to confirm that with this blood on you. And then we get to, we get to all that that pointed to. We get to um, Jesus before Pilate. And uh, there is the opportunity for Jesus to be let go or uh, I can let Barabbas go, this, this murderer. And Pilate, Pilate opens the, the window and says, who's it going to be Jesus or Barabbas, this murderer. And, they uh, they say, give us Barabbas. And uh, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, 
his blood be on us and on our children. Mm-hmm. And so here, here we say, we say, you know, and, and that's that, uh, just the irony of reading that in context with Moses throwing the blood of uh, uh, throwing the blood of the sacrifice on the people. And then we fast forward to Matthew chapter 27 and the people as they are as they are calling for Christ's crucifixion, they are saying his blood be on us. And what they don't realize is, is uh, as my friend Daniel Amir Price, the Lutheran says, yep, you know, that's actually how it works. Yeah. His blood's going to have to be on you if you're going to be saved. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's, it's Pilate goes on at that point then and washes his hands right. of the situation. Right. Like, and that's where we get phrases like, you know what? I washed my hands of this, this situation, or you know what? His, his blood be on your hands, right? Like we say that about someone taking responsibility for something or someone having to own something or someone being done with something. That context actually comes from the Bible, right? We get that from the, this narrative. And, and we see uh, in the covenant with Moses and we see how it, how it unplay, you know, unfolds and plays out um, in the, the gospel narrative that with this, this covenant, um, to obey this covenant to keep the law that even when we think we're doing it right, just like the rich young ruler, right? When I've, I've kept all those things, I'm a good person. I've, I've checked all these boxes. You really haven't, you really haven't at at all. Um, And there's no way you actually could. Um, And so that, that's an important piece because that is going to shape uh, the need for what the theologians call the covenant of grace. So even in these covenants we're talking about in the biblical narrative, there's an overarching kind of two pillar side of a covenant of works and a covenant of grace, right? Either you're going to get salvation by perfect obedience, or you're going to get salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And the, the good news of the gospel is Jesus not only gives you grace through his sufficient sacrifice, but he lives the life you can't live and fulfills the, the requirements of the Mosaic law. And he fulfills the requirements of, of the Edemic covenant. And he fulfills the requirements of the covenant of works. He is the only one able to perfectly obey. And it's actually his life of obedience that is part of the credit to our account so that we come into the throne of grace through the credit of Jesus's work and his work alone, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection and ascension. So then, then we come to the Davidic covenant. And you see that in the story of David, as we talked about David and Goliath, and then as he becomes king in 2 Samuel 7, we see as king, God makes a promise with him. And in that promise that... Uh, God, that covenant that God enacts with David in Second Second Samuel chapter seven, he ultimately promises that from David that his kingdom is never going to end, that his line of succession is going to go on forever, because his offspring, the son of David, is going to be a king whose reign has no end. And that's where we see through the lineage of David, through his offspring, that this is the same offspring that's going to bless the nations. This offspring is also going to be the king that is going to reign forever. 
What, what I hope our listeners are noticing as we are walking through these covenants and giving a, a, a picture of redemption, of covenant theology, what I hope they're seeing is that we are trying to show how well connected the Old Testament is to the New Testament, that we're tying a string around an Old Testament passage and pulling that string tight and tying the other end of it to its New Testament fulfillment to see how it all fits together. So what... What is the promise that, that is given to David again? So the promise that's given to David is that from his lineage is going to come a king, kingdom that is never going to end. That's and, right. and, and out of that, we see that that fulfillment finds it, its hope and, and its security and foundation in Jesus. Yeah, and you know, the, the people of Israel knew that they were looking and longing for a Messiah who would, who would come and, and, uh, and be the, the son of David who would be the Messiah who would save them. And so when we get to Luke chapter, chapter 1, uh, and the angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary, he says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary, you're going to have a son. He's going to be miraculously born. He's going to be the son of the Most High. That means he's going to be the son of God. Uh, he's going to he's going to sit on the throne of his father David, but unlike his father David, his kingdom will never end. He will sit on this throne eternally. So, Mary, you're going to have this son that is that was promised to David. It's that promise is coming true now in your pregnancy, in your miraculous pregnancy. You're going to have a son, and he's going to be the son of God. And he's going to be a, he's going to be a son of David. He's going to be a king, and he's not going to be a finite king, a finite ruler. But he's going to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's going to rule and reign forever. And then we get little hints along the way um, of one more covenant that's coming, one that that that's better than everything that they've seen. That's putting all the the pieces together, and we get little hints like Jeremiah chapter thirty one. And in Jeremiah 31, as, as God is, is talking um, to Jeremiah and, and by extension to the, the people of God, he says in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Let's stop there. What covenant is he talking about? He's talking about the Mosaic Covenant. So I'm going to do something different than the, the covenant of the law. I'm doing some, something um, better. And he says, continuing in verse 32, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Uh, so again, that's, you know, you talked about Hosea. That's that husband-wife covenant language. And here, he goes on, verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here's the thing 
that, that you should hear there. One, there's a new covenant coming. It's not like the covenant of, of works or of the law where you have to try to obey to live because you broke it and you can't, you can't do it. So there's a new and better covenant coming. But although it's new, it should, bells should kind of start to go off. It sounds just like the Abrahamic covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. And then he says something, but he says something even better. And I will remember their iniquity no more. How is he going to do that? Well, then we fast forward to 1 Corinthians 11. And we see that Paul does something pretty significant because all he's doing is telling you the story of of what Jesus has done. That Christ, as you mentioned earlier, Scott, takes the Passover meal and he fulfills it by taking that meal and pointing to a new covenant that he's, he's establishing in his body and in his blood. And that's how we have the Lord's Supper. That's, that's our, one of our signs that's given to us to represent this new covenant that Jesus has done in fulfilling the law's demand by his life of perfect obedience, by being the sufficient sacrifice for our sins and being approved as that sacrifice by God raising him from the dead. And so then we see in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul is giving us what we call the words of institution, uh, the words of instruction when we go before the table um, at church, when we give communion, it says in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after supper saying, this is the cup of what? The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we see all of these promises, a need for a better Adam, um, a need for a good covenant head um, and steward of creation, a, a hope of restoration, a, a offspring of Abraham that is going to set things right, a um, perfect son of Israel that is going to fulfill the law's demands, a king of kings and lord of lords that is going to be a better king than David. All of those promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, and Jesus enacts this new and better covenant, this covenant of grace that isn't demanding obedience because Jesus has done all the obeying, but instead, by faith in his finished work, we now can enter into this covenant of grace and find hope and find salvation, and we have this ultimate new and and better covenant. That's it. There's no more need for another agreement because all the conditions of the covenant have been fulfilled by Jesus, by his finished work. And so we rest in those promises. And, and, and then we see that in that um, baptism comes into play. Scott, you had some, some thoughts there. 
Well, I was just going to point you to point our, our listeners to Hebrews chapter eight, where where the writer of the Hebrews says, but, "But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates uh, 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 as the covenant he uh, much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would, be, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So again, we see Jesus is the is the mediator of a better covenant, as he says. And this is the this is my blood." of the new covenant. This is why this is why this is so important. Hopefully, if our listeners are hearing this for the first time, hearing these covenants highlighted, brought out, having the dots connected, hopefully the the in doing this, it's breathing some. The, the the Holy Spirit is using this to breathe some some life into our Bible, and we are beginning to see what an amazing book this is, and how well it connects together, and that we understand the Bible better as we understand these covenants. Because Michael Horton says that the 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 structure of the Bible is covenant. You know, you 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 go into the attic of your house and you lay on your back and you look up and you see these rafters and you say. The thing that holds my roof on, the thing that holds this house together is is these rafters. And so Michael Horton says the architecture of the Bible is a series of covenants. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand how the Bible is pieced together. And and um, yeah, so even you just take the Lord's Supper when Jesus is, if you're in a church that takes the Lord's Supper with great frequency, and we hope you are, as Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Well, in order for me to then understand and celebrate what that means, I need to understand what the old covenant was, what the new covenant is, and what it means for him to say, this is my blood of the new covenant. So this is not, this is not inside baseball. This is not... Uh, seminary stuff that only preachers and teachers need to know about. This is the stuff every Christian needs to get, needs to grasp if they're going to understand what the Bible is about. Absolutely. And and, and we mentioned you know, in the Abrahamic covenant that God gives signs. Right? And in the signs that he gives, he gave the people circumcision. As we think about this new covenant, we also see as I mentioned in Jeremiah 31, that there is a connection there of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to this new covenant, because Jesus is the offspring that is going to bless the nations. Well, just like with um, the Abrahamic covenant, he's given the sign of circumcision. um, And that sign points to a reality, right? That, that, that outward sign points to a circumcision of heart that's needed for the people of God. Well, then we see in this new covenant where the promises are are the same, and we see a connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, we now are given a a new sign, a better sign, and the sign of baptism. And we won't go into all the details of that. I would direct you to season one. We had, uh, I believe, two episodes on baptism uh, that that handles uh, the details of all that. But in that, you see, as we looked in Jeremiah 31, there's a connection there. And so there is a connection between circumcision and baptism. And we now, in this new covenant, as new covenant people, give this sign to our covenant community, both to our children and to those who profess faith. And and this sign 
this washing of, of, of water points to what Jesus has done and what God declares to be true about you because of what he has done. And so you start to kind of see all the pieces together. Um, and I would just say this briefly, because we, we mentioned this at the end, and I'll give you some resources. This is drastically different than maybe the dispensationalism you were taught. And you may not even know that that's what you were taught, but you may think to yourself, this doesn't sound like a hard line between Israel and the church. This doesn't sound like eventually God's going to bring up the sacrificial system again um, and separate Israel and the church and reign on the earth. Uh, This doesn't necessarily sound like he's doing something different with Adam and different with David and different in different dispensations or chunks of time. And you're right, because we, we think that that particular perspective isn't helpful and it isn't biblical, and it's actually making a lot of error because instead of seeing one crimson thread and one storyline, it seems to make God out to do different things at different times with different people. And it makes you do really weird things depending on if you're classically uh, dispensational or progressively dispensational to where you start looking at the election and you're trying to interpret um, all the signs of the times based off of your, where, where are we in the dispensations or the chunks of time? Um, I don't think you'll find that in the scripture. And I would encourage you to take what we've taken to uh, told you today and go investigate it for yourself in the text and see how the dots start to connect. And there's a couple of resources as we wrap up today that I would uh, commend to you. The first is um, the October um, edition of the Table Talk magazine that Ligonier Ministries puts out. It's a uh, LigonierMinistries.org, I believe, is their website. We'll put it in the show notes. The October issue is all about covenant theology. So if you want to understand this better, it's a small magazine, super cheap to get. It's great. I would absolutely commend that to you. Another resource I would commend to you, Scott mentioned Michael Horton. He has a fantastic book called Introduction to Covenant Theology. Not not overbearing. It's not a seminary level 500, 600 page book. It's real, real easy read. I would commend that to you. If you are like me and you grew up in a context where you may not even realize that you were taught dispensationalism, but maybe as you've listened to our episodes and listened to our our friends at the Society of Reformed Podcasters and and all those different uh, shows there, and you may realize, man, this is not what I was taught growing up. Let me commend a resource to you. Keith Matheson has a small book called Dispensationalism, where he does a great uh, compare and contrast of, of our two schools of thought there. Uh, and I would commend that to you. Scott, and any other recommendations? Uh well, I think one of the again dispensationalism is a very very pre- prevalent uh theological construct that's that is everywhere but it, it it seldom advertises itself as dispensationalism so there are a lot of churches that just kind of would call themselves a bible church right but what they what they're teaching is dispensationalism and so it, it teachings about a, a secret rapture where all the christians disappear off the earth that's a that is a a unique feature of dispensationalism um, the the left behind novels, all of that kind of craziness. That's Scofield disp- Bibles, writer Scofield Bible. Yeah, dispensationalism mm-hmm. is uh, was a a theological construct uh, that was 
put on top of the scripture that nobody had seen in the scripture prior to the late 1800s when when uh, John Nelson Darby um, developed it. And so, but it, it it never advertises itself as a recent thing. It 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 would have its followers believe this is just a plain reading of the text, and it it just plain isn't. So, right. um, the the resources you've pointed out are good. We'll, I think we probably are going to in a, in the future do an episode about why we don't believe in a rapture. That would be a fun thing to talk through, uh, and to apply just the study of hermeneutics to that idea and why we don't hold to a secret disappearance. You don't need a bumper sticker that says, in the case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Uh, that's, that's not necessary. Uh, while we don't believe in a in a um, in in a sudden disappearance of Christians leaving the rest of the unbelieving world here on the planet to stew in its own juices, right? Um, but we and why you why you don't have to read your newspaper alongside your your study in Revelation. Um, so, I, so I think the, those things are super helpful. Uh, again, if you have questions about any of this, we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can always email us at contact at assuranceofpardon.com or uh, send us a message on the website. Um, we'll try to include all these resources and others in the show notes um, for your uh, benefit. Um, and as always, this is Assurance of Pardon. God bless.